Hello and a very warm welcome to this Master Investor podcast reflecting on 2022 with myself, Sarah Lother and Jonathan Davis, author, investor, podcaster, teacher, editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. You may have seen him speaking at the Mellow events, although other platforms are available or he can be seen huddled around a game of bridge. Now, Jonathan, of course, this entire podcast could be devoted to your accolades, but it's about 2022. And um, yes, we are speaking to each other in December and both of us <laughs> have quite um, cleverly decided we would do this in our Arctic coats because it's, it is very chilly. But let's, uh, I want to take us back to June when it wasn't so chilly and um I had a bit of an epiphany at the Small Cap Awards and the keynote speech by Claire Barrett, who's the consumer editor at the Financial Times. And she was saying that retail investors hold the keys to the stock market success. And she was saying, you know, they're not like fund managers chasing top quartile performance. Um, they're being bullied by, you know, top down management at investor banks, you know, investment banks. She's saying that... Um, the private investor with their pocket money or pension pots only beholden to themselves. They're the ones that can make or break companies and exchanges. I'm thinking about AIM in particular. And, you know, since June, I think she might have a point. What do you think about the power of the retail investor? Well, I think uh, you're absolutely right. The retail investor is uh, Coming back into vogue, if you like, the retail investor was always a, a big thing in the markets before Big Bang, before we had institutionalized deregulation of uh, stock markets and globalization, all those good things. Retail investors were the backbone of the of the stock market. That's obviously changed over the years with the arrival of big pension funds and and uh, fund management groups and so on. And But the, the retail investor is making a big comeback, I think, and I think it's a jolly good thing, too. I mean, there's a number of factors behind that. One, I think, is simply the fact that the internet now makes all sorts of information available to retail investors that weren't uh, available before. Uh, secondly, um, regulation, deregulation has uh, in, worked in the opposite effect. They can't get, it's difficult to get hold of broker research unless you're a client of a broking, a broking house. So, but the information out on the internet is as good as you used to get from a broker, and in fact, in many ways, better uh, than you used to get. So they've empowered the private investor. And then finally, um, a lot of fund management companies have woken up to the fact that because of changes happening in the in the market for uh, investment products, um, they need retail investors. And suddenly, both companies and fund managers are, are starting to bend over backwards to attract retail investors. Uh, and that's a, a really positive thing, um, provided that investors are, are smart enough to take advantage of it. Yeah. And there's a really good article um, this month, December 2022, released by um, the, the QCA.com, which was saying that um, self-investment retirement schemes, easy to use internet platforms, as you've just referenced there, are, are making the retail investor more powerful. But then there's the platforms themselves. And I've been trying to get my head around this tie up between Microsoft and the London Stock Exchange. London Stock Exchange has been going in various iterations for the last 300 years. Then you've got Microsoft, which is only 47 years old, established in 1975. Microsoft has taken a 4% shareholding in the London Stock Exchange, the, the listed entity. And it's a strategic tie-up. So Microsoft, 
4% of London Stock Exchange. London Stock Exchange has to pay hundreds of millions of pounds for Microsoft products. So I'm not quite sure where, you know, shareholder perks features in this. And so it buys lots of Microsoft products and then migrates things to the cloud. I got worried because I can remember way back in 2008 when um, a lot of companies were using certain software and it almost, as they integrated this certain software from a certain company, it almost broke them. I'm thinking about HP, Whirlpool, Levi Strauss, a couple of companies I worked for integrating this new software and it was so buggy and um, customers weren't happy consumers weren't happy, the businesses weren't happy. I just hope that that doesn't happen to the London Stock Exchange. Otherwise, we're going to need to keep our bowler hats on and umbrellas in case there is any fallout from the migration to the cloud. I don't know, I'm I'm a bit concerned about this, but you know, I should maybe stop living in 2008. Well, I can actually give you an example from even further back, which is that my uh, my brother used to be a director of a company called Dorling Kindersley, which publishes coloured, uh, very highly illustrated books, and you can still find them around. Um, and uh, 30 years ago, Microsoft took a stake in them, a strategic stake in that company, thinking that this is very early stages in the uh, in the internet, uh, development of the internet. They were being quite visionary, Microsoft, that they were going to take all these lovely images and books and turn them into uh, things that were available online, which, of course, you now can do have ebooks and so on. Uh, but that particular thing was, you know, it was ambitious, but it didn't actually do much good for the, the, the publishing company. And eventually, after a while, they disappeared. There were too many cultural issues. There were data issues, as you say, all these kind of things. I mean, I think the issue here, as I understand it, is that, you know, Microsoft and the London Stock Exchange are trying to take on Bloomberg, basically. They're trying to give retail investors as well as professional investors. I think professional investors are still the main market, but they're trying to give retail investors access to a, a data supply service and an information supply service all in one place, which is like a kind of mini Bloomberg. Bloomberg is a wonderful system if you can afford it, but it's £30,000 uh, a year to, to become a subscriber to get a, a terminal. Uh, and so I think they kind of take them on. They only have a relatively small part of that market. But since the LSE took over um, Refinitiv, or if it is the data system, which used to be known back in the day as, uh, I think it was back in the day, it was uh, Reuters or something, wasn't it, back in the day? Um, they're trying to compete on that level. So, yeah, who knows? But the, the bugs, I'm sure there'll be plenty of bugs, and it will take a long time. They were talking about 2025, I think, before they finally got this all sorted out. So you're probably right to be nervous. And uh, uh, But, of course, most people still invest, retail investors still invest through the, the retail platforms, the Hargreaves, Lansdowne's, Interactive Investor, and so on. Uh, and uh, they have legacy issues. They will soon have legacy issues. Um, and particularly if you, you know, you, you take over other platforms like Interactive Investor has done before they got sold to Aberdeen. I mean, the whole, the, I would have more worries about their technology than, uh, than uh, some of the other platforms. Having um, said that, sorry, back in the day, I was, I was a non-exec of Hargreaves, Lansdowne for a while. And the only thing that kept us awake at night, fantastic business, only thing that kept us awake at night was the worry that the the system would blow up and uh, the data would, you know, the, the, the IT was not really, uh, you know, as 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 uh, wonderful as uh, you would wish it to be. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Bloomberg, that I was a Bloomberg girl 2003 to 2009. I had a, a, a breakfast show on the Bloomberg platform and then 2008, 2009 happened. They 
they made us all redundant, which I didn't take personally. It made good business sense since no one was buying their terminals anymore. Uh, and then Bloomberg had this sort of refresh and and rebrand, and they've come out bigger, stronger, um, smarter, cleverer. So it'd be interesting to see if they are wanting to position themselves against Bloomberg, which has you know, got a legacy and, and seems to be kind of sorted. Um, you mentioned it's a market leader. I mean, it's got. A, I think it's got eighty percent of the market or something. So it's definitely got. Uh, it's it's the market leader and uh, has seen off most rivals so far. You mentioned Dorling Kindersley. There, it's a it's a publisher that is very close to my heart. But I've been looking at publishers this week. Um, Penguin Random Random House, which is a product of consolidation, it's had its two point two billion dollar takeover of uh, Simon and Schuster blocked by regulators. So there's obviously a lot of consolidation amongst the publishers at the moment. So I was looking at the share price of Bloomsbury Publishing, uh, UK listed, known for um, taking a, a punt with J.K. Rowling and. And then we know what happened with the Harry Potter series. So, so this particular month, I've seen their share price hitting a, a year high. And I'm also seeing the institutions building up their stakeholdings within the publisher as well. So, you know, maybe strategic by the institutions looking around to see, you know, could Bloomsbury be a takeover target? But the reason I think that the Penguin Random House acquisition of um, Simon and Schuster didn't work was an impassioned plea by horror novelist Stephen King, who was completely against the tie-up, saying it's it's bad for authors. So the power of of horror. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, it has been a huge wave of consolidation in publishing. Been going on what for thirty years, I think. Actually, going back to the the, the first, it all started. I kicked off in the early nineties, I think, uh, when people actually realised that uh, uh, the world was changing, world of publishing was changing, and the internet's obviously accelerated that. So they're as much defensively uh, driven, I think, as uh, you know, from trying to save money basically by consolidation, uh, and not necessarily good for authors, exactly um authors uh you know have a, a very rough time as many people know most authors 90 percent of authors make virtually no money at all uh out of out of writing books they you know i think the average income is about seven thousand a year from uh, for uh for an author um it's only the the very few at the top who uh who make lots of money out of it and boy do they make a lot of money um but i think bloomsbury is a very interesting story i mean they've done really well to uh everybody said you know when harry potter was uh started and then blew up they all said well how will they ever repeat that but they've done a very good job at actually doing that so uh, uh, i keep an eye on that one as well and i wouldn't be surprised if they do get a, a bid in due course um consolidation of course in all these industries is, is becomes a kind of fashion doesn't it uh investment bankers know a good thing when they see one and uh, uh the normal rule of thumb in my case is at least you know one out of every two uh, uh, consolidations of this kind uh, don't work basically uh, and uh, the other two, the other half might might work, and sometimes work very well. But so you shared there that um, most authors don't make very much money. So it's, I suppose it's a labour of love. But you are the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook. Investment trusts is is not um, a field I know very much about. So in terms of the, the themes with investment trusts 
this past calendar 12 months? What what moves have been made there? Yes, well, you're very kind of you to mention that. It's actually it's been published. The formal publication is today, the day that we're recording oh. this uh, <laughs> this podcast. So uh, I've got a hard copy. It's landed in my uh, in my post box, and uh, so far I haven't found any uh, any mistakes in it yet. But um, there's usually one hidden away in the 268 pages somewhere. But uh, yes, it's been a tough year for investment trusts. Really, has been a tough year for investment trusts. Um, but that comes with the territory. You know, we've had a we've had a bear market. We've had both stocks and bonds going down at the same time. First time in any uh, calendar year that we've seen, uh, uh, you know, a combined decline of ten percent in both of those asset classes. Uh, we've had a bit of a rally more recently, and that uh, doesn't generally work well for investment trusts because they uh, investment trusts can use gearing, for example, and those that use gearing borrowing to enhance returns over the longer term, they will suffer during a bear market more than uh, more than open-ended equivalents. Uh, and so we've seen uh, both. Uh, NAVs decline and we've seen discounts widen. The, the issue of the difference between the share price and the net asset value is a key metric for investment trust investors. Uh, and that's widened this year. But if you're an investment trust investor, you know that. You have to expect that this is what's going to happen. And actually, uh, investment trusts have done quite well over the last year. I actually got some figures from the AIC. Um, and what they told me was I asked them to look at every investment trust over. There's there's more than uh, you know nearly 400 investment trusts out there. Uh, lots more open-ended funds, but uh, 400 investment trusts. Uh, and of the 300 and something that have more than a 50 million pound um, uh, market capitalization, um, something like 40% of them have actually made a, a positive uh, net asset value return over the past 12 months. Uh, and 20% uh, have made a, a share price total return. So that means the discounts have widened quite widely. So yeah, it's been a tough year for investment trusts. But of course, that also creates opportunities. You, uh, if you've got, you can buy something at a big discount. You, you can, when the market turns, uh, make uh, even more money out of them. So, uh, yeah, it's been tough, but it's been uh, not uh, unexpected. So you talk about a bear market there, and about how um, markets when they turn. So, how many years are we into this bear market, and how long do bear markets normally last for? Because I thought economic cycles were usually. 15 years in duration but then I think everything or the rule book has been torn up over the past three years yeah well it has certainly we've had the pandemic which was uh, came out of nowhere um, and we've had the the war in Ukraine which few people were expecting um, though in retrospect you know you can see that uh, that might have been coming if you had been a, a, a criminologist and uh, studied Putin's state of mind um, so yeah, bear markets. Well, bear markets come around, uh, come around uh, fairly regularly, but uh, at relatively large intervals. And we have to distinguish between sort of serious bear markets and uh, short-term bear markets. Most people define a, a bear market in the equity market as being a twenty percent decline from peak to to trough. Uh, and if you go past twenty percent, which we have done this year uh, briefly, um, the the U.S. stock market is down now around I think about. 16, 17%, but it was down uh, more than that at one point. Um, so this is, a, this is a serious bear market. Um, and there's basically two schools of thought. I mean, they, they never last for a long time. They never, uh, you, you won't get a bear market that lasts for more than uh, uh, two years, typically. Um, so if it started in January last year, which it did do, or even December the year before, when inflation started to get out of control before the Ukraine war, um, that would suggest that if it runs a typical course, it would be sometime in the second half of next year that it hits bottom and then we'll see some kind of revival you you never know for certain some of them are longer than others 
Um, it's all to do partly with the interest rate cycle and what the Federal Reserve is doing. But I mean, a good a good rule of thumb is, you know, for a bad bear market, 18 months to 24 months. Um, the one between 2000 and 2003 was just over, it was about a couple of years. Uh, it's just over two, two years. But that was a very, you know, a huge bubble before that. Um, so I would have thought something like that, 18, 24 months. The second point, though, is a slightly different, which is the long-term expected returns from here, uh, I think, will be lower than they have been in the last few years because we're seeing a change in the background of interest rates not being kept very, very low anymore. They just can't do that anymore. So I think we're entering a period of relatively lower returns, but we will get back to positive returns quite soon. And it's at this time of the cycle that people start to deploy um, unusual um, marketing techniques and thinking about name changes that uh, make sense. I'm thinking about poor Royal Mail because, of course, um, this week we've got um, train strikes, um, posty strikes. I think everyone's striking apart from me, but then I am freelance and if I went on strike I'd have to negotiate with myself, and I think that's called schizophrenia, Jonathan. So we no, don't want to. We don't, don't want to. You know. <laughs> we don't want to go there. Um, so you've got Royal Mail PLC um, tarnished with all sorts of problems. So very quietly over summer, it changed its name to International Distribution Services, which is a right mouthful. Um, and has it done anything for the share price? Well, unfortunately, it hasn't. The strikes have cost it about £200 million. I'm not sure if a company can ever recover from that. But waiting in the wings, we talked about consolidation in the in the publishing world. We've got um, the co-owner of West Ham Football Club, um, a, a Czech billionaire. He's slowly buying up a stake. I think he owns 22% of the Royal Mail parent company, and he might come in, but a new owner doesn't necessarily mean um, higher wages for the employers. We just don't know. You've got to be careful what you wish for, I suppose. New regimes don't necessarily mean um, more compensation, but that was one name change, which I, I couldn't quite get my head around. I thought International Distribution Services was a really ugly name. It is a horrible name, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it is a horrible name, um, shortened to IDS, and that would be bring back unfortunate associations with the former Conservative Party leader, Ian Duncan Smith, who wasn't a great success as leader, done some good things since then. Um, you're right. But I mean, I think you can see how the, the kind of the corporate uh, big cheeses have been thinking about this, you know, change the name, get the attention away from the, the business that is really struggling, which is which is delivering post in the UK and uh, talk about the international business, which is doing quite well, quite profitable, I believe. Um, and of course, the, the whole concept of mail has changed a lot. It's now increasingly about delivering parcels rather than about delivering letters, because we can all use email and so on. Uh, and uh, we do or messaging and so on. So we've cut out a lot of standard lettering, letter writing, um, apart from official bodies, which of course send you in a lot of junk mail about things you don't really want. Uh, so it has the business is changing so that you can make a rationale for changing the name if the business has changed. Um, but uh, it's not normally a good sign. I don't think normally it's an attempt to cover up something rather than uh, uh, particularly if you go to some really bland name that doesn't have any particular uh, resonation with anybody. I mean, the alternative route is to go for something kind of rather exotic brandy. And, you know, in, in the fund management world, we've seen this, uh, I think, what a number of people thought was a fairly uh, bizarre decision by 
uh, Aberdeen Investment Management to change its whole name to ABRDN in small letters, no capital letters, uh, purely because I think they thought it might make a better logo or something. I don't know what the thinking was behind it. They must have paid a lot of money for the for the rebranding uh, ideas that went with it. Um, it's not normally a good sign, I have to say. Um, I mean, I hope that I'm wrong about uh, Aberdeen. They've done some interesting <laughs> diversification as well, buying interactive investors, we said, uh, or buying a big stake in it. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, interesting issue, but uh, normally, uh, if they if they change the name, you want to be uh, you want to be quite worried. I think. Yeah, ABRDN. I, it it annoyed me on so many levels, but I'm very sort of anti abbreviation and anti acronym. There was one name change though on the AIM market which did make sense, and that was um, Open Orphan changed its name to HVivo. Now HVivo was one of Open Orphan's subsidiaries, and um, the chief executive said to me, "Well, you know." Orphan equals rare diseases, whereas the company works with infectious diseases. And he said, I'm not just being pedantic, but the two are, are very different. He said, open orphan served its purpose. Um, we're going to retire that. And by doing so, he said, we save on overheads. You retire a brand, you just concentrate on one brand. HVivo has been around for about 20 years. 93% of the staff work for HVivo. So that name change came in in about October and it's been accepted because it it made sense. And if it costs, if it saves money as well, then, you know, two ticks and perhaps a gold star. Yes, true enough. I mean, there is an awful trend, though, towards uh, coming up with abbreviations, as you said, which is uh, they, they tend to obscure things. I mean, going back in the day, you know, British Petroleum became BP because they were they they wanted to emphasize the fact that they weren't just an oil company uh, though you know what you really want is your name to, uh, to to tell you what the business does isn't it i mean that's really uh, would be a good thing um or once you've established a brand name then you know on the whole you want to stick with it unless it gets totally tarnished uh, by some terrible thing you've done and you want to change it for for that reason there are quite a lot of examples out there where you had scandals and they then have to change the name so that people don't they hope that people won't remember that they, they were responsible for uh, doing something terrible like that. Um, you know, going back to, uh, well, distillers, you remember the, the thalidomide scandal, if you go back that far, it's a long time ago, I know. Um, they eventually got taken over and assumed by uh, by Guinness, which then became Diageo and then, you know, so on. What does Diageo mean? Does it have, does it, does it resonate with you? Diageo, um, it resonates with some lost Friday nights. That's, about about it really jonathan yeah okay <laughs> well perhaps that's not quite the image they want to project but uh <laughs> apparently, apparently you can't drink. the point is you can't drink diageo right i mean you can't you can't drink diageo it's not a brand name you'll see on any of their bottles it's not like fever tree where you you know fever tree is produces fever tree and obviously they've got so many brands that uh they can't really kind of isolate one because of that you know that will then um underplay the other one so you can see the logic for it but i mean you know the the amount of money they spend on coming up with these things that aren't even words you know diageo i don't is diageo a word or is it named after some i don't know some rare um thing you take out of the ground to put in your gin and tonic i don't know who knows or your johnny walker i don't know yeah. I, no, I don't know. Um, perhaps we should ask them. But I think that was the problem it was that I had drank so many of their brands in one sitting. And that's why it was a bit of a, a lost Friday. But in terms of abbreviations, 
Jonathan, how would you summarize or abbreviate 2022? 2022, okay, how would I abbreviate it? Uh, well, in, from an investment perspective, um, I would say um, difficult. <laughs> That's not, uh, um, uh, but it could have been worse, I guess. I mean, the thing about this year, 2022, I mean, COVID was terrible. The pandemic was terrible, uh, a terrible human tragedy, as well as, uh, you know, a, a real threat to the global economy. This year, we've had Ukraine, and I don't think you can therefore make 2022 a positive year. And, you know, you don't want to associate it with a positive abbreviation. Um, you know, I think it's been a terrible development. And who would have thought? I mean, I mentioned this in the Investor Trust Handbook, the notes I write. I mean, who would have thought this year that we would have seen both the return of double-digit inflation and a war on the continent of Europe? I mean, an invasion of, of another country in, on the continent of Europe. I mean, those are two things that back in, you know, not so long ago, we thought we would never see again. In, uh, inflation, because they've been controlled, you know, we knew how to control them. Unfortunately, central banks and governments have let that get out of control. Uh, and war in Europe, because that was just unthinkable. You know, we thought we'd, you know, if you triumph of democracy and all the rest of it, the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, we thought uh, the development of the EU the NATO umbrella, we thought we would never see that again. Uh, and it's a really um, uh, horrible development that may yet, though, produce a, uh, you know, a positive outcome. So um, I think, um, I guess I'd say, uh, difficult, but not without hope. Which leads me to my final, my final question, which is 2023, will it be more civilised? More civilised? Um, well, I, uh, it can't be more civilized than you and I having this conversation, I suppose we could say that. Um, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I hope for good outcomes on, uh, uh, on both measures, uh, both those two things anyway. Um, but we, there's no doubting we have a, we are facing a very uh, difficult next few years, I think. I mean, we've got governments are over indebted. We haven't seen the end of the Ukraine war. Uh, and there is talk of a negotiated settlement, but uh, will that be a positive? Um, hard to say. Uh, we're things happening in China that are that are uh, alarming, and so on. So there's always things to worry about. But basically, if you are a human being, and certainly if you're an investor, you have to have an optimistic streak, uh, because that's the reason you invest. Uh, and you know, I'm definitely one of those who are in the the positivist camp. That the human race is extraordinarily good at fixing problems. I mean, I haven't mentioned uh, climate change. Obviously, that's a long-term problem to be dealt with. Um, but we have, you know, we do have a long record of actually solving problems, uh, provided we can all work together. And that's what obviously what we all hope will happen this year. That's one of the things I love about you is that your glass isn't just half full. It's always full, Jonathan. And I really look forward to speaking to you next year when hopefully it will be a bit more civilised and maybe a bit warmer. And, I'm, you know, this coat um, smells a bit damp, actually. So I think I'm going to have to put it back in the airing cupboard. But um, it's not smell-o-vision, thankfully. And thank you, Jonathan. Well, let's hope so. And uh, I should mention that my glass will be uh, more than half full of uh, of uh, Diageo products in the next few days. So at least that will be some consolation. <laughs> Take care. Thank you, Jonathan. Cheerio. Merry Christmas. Pleasure as always. And happy Christmas to you. This podcast was brought to you by Master Investor. For more investment and economics analysis, please visit masterinvestor.co.uk.